Heavenly Father, we've been singing about who Jesus is, the one with the name that's high over all. We've seen, uh, we've sung that Jesus is the one that is also the Lord of all in the storm. And we see those truths in this passage that we are about to read. The truths that we've sung are truths that we find in your word. And so I pray that you would help us to see them clearly as we open up at your word this evening. We pray, Heavenly Father, for your presence to be among us. That we would know as we read your word and we think about these, uh, these, these truths together, that we would know that we've met with you. Uh, we want to have a time where we know that we've been spoken to by the true and living God. And we ask for that tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were cursed by God and the whole of creation was cursed as well. The impact of sin is more than uh, for us only as individuals, but the impact of sin means that the whole world is impacted. So that is creation as well as the people in it. And we see the impact all around us, not just the beast from the east, uh, so to speak, but there is suffering and chaos all over the world, all of the time, and there always has been throughout human history, because we live in a cursed world. And this understanding of how the curse impacts the world also helps us to see what it means when Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. Jesus saving his people from their sins is more than uh, having a nice feeling of forgiveness and a, a ticket to heaven. Being saved from sin means we are saved from all of the consequences of sin. That is the impacts of the curse. So when we are saved from sin, we are also eventually saved from sickness, from natural disasters, from demons, all the aspects of the curse. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, which we've begun uh, to study recently, we have seen that Jesus has authority to deal with sin and the consequences of sin. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus gives us a glimpse of a future time when we will see the reverse of the curse. We've seen that at the beginning of chapter 8 as he heals leprosy. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals many that come to him. We've seen him reversing the impact of sin on those who are sick. And tonight, as we look at verses 23 down to the beginning of chapter 9, we see him reversing the curse in other areas as well. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 8. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. 
The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you are of little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all of this including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowds saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. This is God's words. There are four miracles in these three accounts which show us that Jesus has the authority to reverse the curse. This is this this whole section really is about the authority of Jesus. You've got uh, <clears throat> sections of miracles interspersed with sections about discipleship or following Jesus as King, which we saw last week about the the cost of following Jesus. All different aspects we see here of his authority, and the first uh, aspect of authority we see is authority over creation. So the disciples follow Jesus into the boat, obeying the order, if you look back at verse 18, to cross over to the other side. He's made that command for them to cross over to the other side. He's uh, interrupted, it seems, by uh, this discussion in verses 18 to 22. Uh, We're not told by Matthew which disciples are in the boat, But in other Gospels, this account comes after the calling of the disciples. And so we can assume that at least some of these were the twelve, meaning that there were fishermen in this boat. Verse 24 says how suddenly a furious storm came up. 
Storms and natural disasters are part of the curse on creation. And Lake Galilee is 680 feet below sea level, where hills and valleys are around it, and the hills and the valleys act as giant funnels where winds can suddenly rush down them onto the lake. Storms were not unusual on Lake Galilee, but this one was unusual. The suddenness meant that it was unexpected, and the description shows that it was a terrifying prospect. The Greek word here behind storm is seismos, where we get the English word seismic. So it's talking of something like an earthquake, a storm that was earth-shaking, that caused the waves to be so big that they swept over the boat. The seriousness of the storm is shown by the fear that the fishermen who are used to being on this lake, who no doubt have been in storms before, end up turning to a carpenter for help. But the carpenter, Jesus, was asleep. Now, I don't know how heavy you sleep, but this was obviously a deep sleep because the storm was ferocious. How could Jesus sleep in this? Well, Jesus was obviously very tired. He was exhausted after a long day's work. He slept sound in the knowledge that the boat was in the safe hands of the fishermen, surely. If I I can sleep on an airplane, if I can trust the pilot knows what he's doing in flying the plane. If I don't think he knows what he's doing, I don't sleep so well. But the sleep of Jesus shows here a calmness, a peace that is in contrast both to the storm and to the disciples. The disciples were so terrified that they thought they were going to die. And in desperation, they wake Jesus up and they say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. We are going to drown. We're going to die. They were at this point of desperation where they had nowhere else to turn. And so they turned to Jesus and they expected Jesus to help them. And their cry for help reveals that they did believe he could do something. Which is not surprising if they had seen him at work that day healing diseases and casting out demons. He might be a carpenter, but they know he's more than that too. In fact, turning to Jesus was exactly the right thing to do. God had brought them to a place where they could go nowhere else. A place that he wants us to be in too. Desperation has a way of turning us to God, of God getting our attention. Well, the initial problem in the account is the storm. But there is actually a bigger problem here. Before Jesus deals with the problem of the storm, notice how he deals with the problem of their faith or their lack of it. Look again at verse 26. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? This is not no faith, but little faith. They had faith that Jesus could do something But they lacked faith in that they were afraid. They should have trusted more in Jesus. Their trust should not only that Jesus was able to do something, 
but rather in the fact that Jesus is in control as Messiah of his and their destiny. You see, this was a frightening storm. If you were there, we would be scared. But their problem wasn't that the storm was scary. The problem was they didn't see the fact that Jesus is Messiah in the storm. Jesus is in control of his destiny as Messiah, who will die on the cross, not on a boat in a lake, and of their destiny too. Jesus' sleep was not only from exhaustion, he could sleep because he knew that his life was in the hands of his father and his time of his death had not yet come. He trusted his father's care and was calm. And they should have seen Jesus and been calm too. Why are you afraid? Almost seems like a joke, doesn't it? They might have thought, well, Jesus, look, look around you, Jesus. Having faith doesn't mean the situation's not frightening, because it was. But the fear should be driven out by faith, rather than faith being driven out by fear. The situation was scary, but faith should have driven out fear. But we see that fear drove out faith. It's interesting to me that Jesus rebukes the disciples before rebuking the storm. Notice that. So the rebuke happens while the storm is still raging. He doesn't wait till after to give them a talking to. He speaks to them in the storm to tell them of their lack of faith. I mean, some of, you might have found, found, well, that would be really annoying, wouldn't it? The storm's still going on, and Jesus wants to give them a lesson on discipleship. You think, well, Jesus, I'm happy to talk about this, but let's get this storm dealt with first. But in the storm, Jesus is in complete control, and he is discipling his disciples. But he shows them why they can have faith in him, because he does something amazing. Look again at the end of verse 26. He got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. I know we are in the West Midlands, so it may be hard for some of you to picture the sea. This kind of thing doesn't happen on the canal. But I recall living by the sea growing up, and I recall uh, times where I used to love sitting on the cliffs and watching the sea while it was windy. And when, you, uh, when it's windy, uh, the waves uh, just go crazy. But when the wind stops, the waves continue afterwards for a while. The amazing power of Jesus here is shown in that he stops the wind. It's awesome power, but also the waves. At the same time as he rebukes the winds, he rebukes the waves and they both stop At the same time. That doesn't normally happen. It was amazing power. And it says at the end of the verse there that it was completely calm. It was as if no indication a storm had ever happened. And the fear of the disciples changed to amazement in verse 27. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. 
Well, the kind of man this is can be seen uh, in a psalm that may well have been on their mind. Psalm 107. I'm going to show you some of the words of this psalm on the screen. Some, some went out on the sh- sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits end. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. What kind of man is this? The wind and the waves answer to no man except this man, this man who is God. Jesus has authority over creation. He is in control of this storm whilst he is in the storm. Even while Jesus is asleep on the boat as a tired man, as God, he is still upholding every atom of the universe. In Psalm 121 and verse 4, it says, He indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The disciples' response show that they did not fully understand yet who Jesus is. The fact that they question reveals this. But the reader knows, and the disciples will know in the future, this man, this Jesus, he is God. What is it that you fear? What makes you afraid? There are lots of situations that God puts us in, trials that test our faith. And in these trials, God is bringing us to understand that Jesus is the Messiah in the storm. He may seem asleep. You may wonder, where is he? How can Jesus be in this? But Jesus is in control even when he appears to be doing nothing. As we face trials of health and family and relationship situations and sin struggles, our faith is not just that Jesus would do something, but that he is king over all of it. The question to ask ourselves in the trial is this. Do I believe that in this situation, Jesus Christ is Lord and in control? Believing this means that we don't panic, but we trust in the fatherly care of our God, who even while the storm is still raging, disciples us, making us more like Jesus, but in the end is bringing us to the other side, to the calmness of heaven. Well, the boat reaches the other side, which verse 28 describes as the region of the Gadarenes. And here we see the next display of amazing authority. Authority over Satan. 
Jesus is approached with two men who are cursed with demon possession. Jesus has already been casting out demons in Matthew, but this is the first description of an exorcism as well as a description of a demon-possessed person. We don't fully understand demon possession, but we can say that it is real, and we see an example of it here. In demon possession, the personality of the demon or demons eclipses that of the individual. And this causes the individual to do unnatural things, physically, mentally, and or spiritually. In the case of these two individuals, they were violent and they lived among the dead. Now, demon possession is rare even in the Bible. And we see it most commonly during Jesus' ministry, probably as an upsurge of evil that opposes his coming. It does still happen today as Satan opposes the kingdom of God, but it's not something that we need to go looking for. Or, indeed, not something that we really need to be expecting to happen. These particular men lived in or around the tombs. So they, they liked to hang around dead people. And they were violent. They were frightening people. They were avoided by everybody in the society who could do nothing to stop their violence. But Jesus was passing that way and they approached him in fear themselves. Look at verse 29. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Well, these demons know who Jesus is. They, they recognize him as the son of God. Something that the disciples are still yet to be clear on. And they're concerned about being tortured by Jesus. Well, what does that mean? What's going on here? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus will destroy the demons in the lake of fire. Later on in Matthew's gospel, we read of hell like this. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. His angels uh, are demons, like we see here. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we read, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there is, in the future, a time of judgment coming for Satan and his demons. And the worry for them was that this time might be now. Because Jesus has come. And so they begged Jesus to send them into some pigs that were, were feeding some distance away. Rather than be tormented. And sent into the abyss. Well, why did they want to go into pigs? So that's a good question, isn't it? And the answer is, we don't really know a definitive answer. Why did they choose pigs? Except to say that Jesus was not really going to allow them to go into another person. But the purpose of the pigs, as far as we can see here, is that at least they show that the demons have left the people, left these two men. So when the, the demons go into the pigs, everybody knows that these two men no longer are demon-possessed. And we know that because of what happens to the pigs, because they are very obviously demon-possessed. 
Look at what happens in verse 22, verse 32. He says to them, go, one word. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. So just one word from Jesus, go, and the demons obey him. Jesus shows complete authority over the forces of evil here. But what a spectacle that one word caused. A whole herd of pigs committing mass suicide. Why did the pigs do this? Surely it is to show those watching that the demons have left these two men. Everybody can see the demons are no longer in those two men because they are most definitely in those pigs who just moments before were calmly feeding in the field. Jesus is showing that his words have authority and that these men are dispossessed of the demons and they can go back into society. Well, what is the response of the people? But if you're one of the ones whose job, if your day job is tending pigs, this is a bad day at work, right? You've lost a lot. And in verse 33, they run off and they report all of this. And in that verse, notice that we read there that it it was including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. It seems that the, what happened to the demon-possessed men was included in their story, but the big story for them was, well, look at all our pigs. They're all floating in this lake down the bottom of the, of the, of the hill. But once the story was heard, the whole town comes out to meet Jesus, and in verse 34, they plead with him to leave. Go away, Jesus. Go away. They begged him. And interestingly, the word pleaded in verse 34 is exactly the same word as what the demons, uh, what we use for the demons when they said they begged. The demons begged, the people pleaded. It's the same thing. Please, Jesus, go away. These men who had been terrorizing the town were now healed. But the people of the town don't seem pleased at all. They're just scared to death. Jesus has this power, but it's not comfortable, is it? It's not safe. It seems as though they're more concerned for the loss of pigs than that these two men have been freed from bondage. John Calvin writes, This is a sign of disgusting stupidity, that they are more afraid by the loss of swine than delighted by the salvation of the soul. But isn't this disgusting stupidity all too common? How often can we be more concerned about material things of this, uh, this world than we are about Jesus or about other people? It may not be pigs we don't want to lose, but what else are we scared of losing? We can be way more concerned about our own personal comfort, our own reputation, than sharing the gospel or supporting gospel work. Jesus is just uncomfortable. But the bigger picture here is that Jesus has authority over the power of Satan. As we were singing earlier, Jesus, the name high over all, in hell or earth or sky, angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. And we see that happening here, don't we? 
Not everyone, of course, is demon-possessed. But this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and in Ephesians chapter 2. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We may not see loads of demon possession, but we are all in need of freedom from the bondage to the power of Satan which is leading us to destruction with Satan and his demons. And only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can free us from the bondage to the enemy by paying for our sins on the cross and making us his people. Jesus, the prisoner's fetters breaks and bruises Satan's head. Power into strengthless souls, it speaks, and life into the dead. But the response of the people was not to rejoice at the salvation of these men or to ask Jesus to bring his kingdom to them. But they asked him to leave their region. And so often that's the response to Jesus, isn't it? Leave me alone, Jesus. And Jesus did go. He did leave. And we see him shortly getting back into the boat, the opportunity for salvation, perhaps gone for good. When Jesus comes into your life, he will make you uncomfortable in many ways. He is certainly not safe. Some things that you treasure now are going to be drowned just like those pigs. But you will be free from the bondage and you'll have eternal life in heaven where Satan will have no power at all. Well, Jesus and his disciples have left the region of the Gadarenes now, and they are back where they started. In what uh, verse uh, uh, 29 describes, or as his own, uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 1 describes as his own town. So he steps out the boat, crosses over, and comes to his own town. That's Capernaum. He was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth, but his base of operations at this point was the town of Capernaum. That was his hometown. It's a bit like if if people say to me now, where are you from? I'll say I'm, I'm from the region of Warsaw. I wouldn't say I'm from Plymouth, even though I was born there. And it's in Capernaum that we see the, the final display of authority in this passage. Authority over sin. His ministry in Capernaum is continuing. And on this particular day, in verse 2, it says that some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Matthew often has less details than some of the other Gospels. But the other Gospels uh, tell us about this man uh, whose friends dig a hole in the roof for them to get to Jesus in a crowded house. It's the same, same story, same account. They had faith that Jesus would heal this man. And you would think that the big problem for him was his paralysis, right? That was his curse. But the shock at the beginning of this passage is that Jesus sees a bigger curse for this man. And so we read, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus forgives this man's sins. 
Why? The man was coming to Jesus because he was paralyzed. So why wasn't his paralysis dealt with right away? Well, when we looked at the subject of healing a couple of weeks ago, we said that there is a general link between sickness and sin. That is, sickness is in the world because we live in a fallen world that's tainted by sin. Sickness can be a judgment from God against a specific sin, but we don't speculate on that, really. But in Jesus' time, all sickness was seen to be because of the specific sin of an individual. Every single time you sinned in Jesus' day, people believed that it was because of something they had done. And so this man who was paralyzed was looked at as sinful and he would have been avoided by folk as unclean because he was paralyzed. Because he must have done something in order to be paralyzed. And although the man was paralyzed, if he believed himself that the sickness was because of sin, the sin being forgiven would have dealt with the bigger problem in his own mind. This man was not going to feel shortchanged Because Jesus has forgiven his sin while he was still on the mat. I think that's a mistake that when this story is often read, we kind of feel a little bit sorry for the man. Well, you know, you've forgiven his sin. He must have been gutted when he was still lying on the mat. That was not the case. He knew what his big problem was. It was sin. Notice, um, we we can get this in a way from what Jesus says to him when he says, take heart, take heart. These are words of encouragement for a man who is downhearted and the indication is there because of his sin. As well as heartening the man, forgiving the man's sins would have astounded everyone that was there. The astounding thing is not that Jesus doesn't heal his paralysis, but rather the astounding thing is that he does forgive his sin. And the reason is so shocking by what the response of the teachers of the law is at the beginning of verse 3. They say, this fellow is blaspheming. And if Jesus was a mere man, that would be true. Because the forgiveness of sins that is in this passage is not one particular sin. Now normally, when someone asks for forgiveness, it's something that they have done to someone else. So if you sin against me and you come and you ask me for forgiveness, I can forgive you. But this is not that kind of forgiveness. Not, it's not, they're not asking Jesus to forgive him because they landed on his feet when they came through the roof. Or because they've damaged the house. Oh, sorry, Jesus. This is a comprehensive forgiveness of all of this man's sin. This is something which only God can give. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. And when David sinned in Psalm 51, he indicates that all sin is against God, even when someone else has sinned against. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Only God is able to forgive all sin. And if Jesus is just a man, this is a blasphemous thing to say. But Jesus is not just a man. He is a man, but this man is God. 
I mean, partly that's indicated by what happens next in that he, he knows the thoughts of the teachers of the law. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now think about this for a moment. What is the answer to that question? What is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. On one level, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because if I, if, if, if I was to say to you your sins are forgiven, there is no visible proof required that it has happened or not. Whereas if I say to you, get up and walk, well, then the man has to, has to actually do something. He has to get up and walk, doesn't he? So in one sense, on one level, it's easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven. But at a deeper level, it is easier to say, get up and walk, because even uh, someone that uh, has a, a, a gift of healing cannot forgive someone's sins. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus doesn't give us the answer. He doesn't tell us what is easier to say. And the point isn't for us to be really questioning which is easier. The point is, he does both. And we see another miracle in addition to the forgiveness of sins. Look at verses 6 and 7. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. He forgives sins. But then he shows he's able to do that by healing the man. The man knows his sins are forgiven because the root cause of his paralysis is sin. And his paralysis is now gone, which was a demonstration of the fact that his sins are forgiven. Now, this does not mean that when our sins are forgiven, we have a disability that will be healed straight away. But the full demonstration that sins are forgiven will be when we stand in glory fully and bodily whole. The same word that forgives sins heals sickness. The Son of Man, the one who came from heaven, has authority on earth to forgive sins. And that's why he came. Matthew chapter 1, right at the beginning of the gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This is the reason for his coming. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came, to save his people from their sins. And the response of the crowd is there in in verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Awe can also be translated fear. This is the, the right response. An awe or fear that leads to praise. And it was the forgiveness of sins that drew this response. Of all the miracles that Jesus shows us in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, it is the forgiveness of sins that is the greatest of miracles. Because forgiveness of sin is what's behind the resurrection. He comes back from the dead because our sin has been paid for. So yes, the resurrection is the great miracle. 
But that's only because sin is forgiven and paid for at the cross. We look at these accounts and we think, wow, he stilled the storm and he's casting out demons. And we'll see him later raise uh, someone from the dead. But it's the forgiveness of sins that should astound us perhaps the most. Jesus alone has authority to forgive your sins. Christianity's biggest claim is that it deals with our sin. Only Jesus can do this. And if you have not come to Jesus for forgiveness, listen to these words that he says to the paralyzed man and his friends. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. There is forgiveness for all who would come to Jesus and trust him to forgive them. I wonder, what, what, what do you think is your biggest problem in your life? What's your number one problem? If you were to, to think and write down the, the things that trouble you the most, you may be able to list a whole heap of things. But this passage shows us that our biggest problem actually is sin. If we were as concerned about stopping sin in our lives as we were about our physical health, then what more holy people we might be. If we were as concerned about being holy as our worldly ambitions, what a difference we would make in this world and the next. In each of these passages, we've seen a problem from the curse and a miracle from Jesus and a response from onlookers. So there's a a problem from the curse, a miracle from Jesus, and a response from the onlookers. And as you see Jesus here, what is your response? The response that Matthew wants us to have is that awe and praise that this man who is God, who has come to save us from sin. In these chapters in Matthew, we see salvation. But they, they serve as pictures for us as well. I want to give you two, uh, as we close, sets of pictures if you, uh, of what these passages point to. And the first set of pictures looks at the cross, where Jesus died to save us from sin. As we look at the storm, we can be reminded that on the cross, Jesus was in a storm. The storm of God's wrath that turned the whole world into darkness as Jesus bore the full weight of our sins on himself. With the demon-possessed men, we are reminded that Jesus on the cross faced Satan who bruised Jesus. And when the paralytic being forgiven, we are reminded that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection deals with our biggest need, the forgiveness of sin. But these accounts in Matthew also point even further forward to a bigger picture of what the cross and the resurrection finally achieve. They show how Jesus reverses the curse completely in a new heaven and earth. Revelation tells us 
that there will be no more sea in heaven. That's not to disappoint those who like the seaside. But in the Bible, the sea represents chaos. And in heaven, everything will be completely calm. In heaven, Satan and his demons, who we see active here, will be found nowhere. And they will be in the abyss for eternity. Their time will have come. There'll be no pigs for them to go into then. And in heaven, we read that there will be no more sickness, no more paralyzed men. Our roofs in heaven will be safe. There will be no more sickness because there will be no more sin. Listen to these words uh, from Revelation. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. A reverse of the curse. We see a glimpse of it here in Matthew's gospel. But for those whose sins are forgiven, one day this will be a reality. No more chaos, no more demons, no more sickness, no more sin. The curse reversed, no more curse.